Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. So let me introduce myself. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sensemaker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. I was also a California GOP-endorsed state Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine, Guns in America issue in November of 2018, but I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics, activism, and the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge, but also intend to include a practical element Focus on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go, and I want to help you change that. The current podcast format is three podcasts a week, 30 to 45 minutes apiece, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. This podcast is also the nucleus of a larger contextual insurgency project, which includes a weekly roundup substack newsletter that goes out on every Sunday with links to topical events and a short analysis. I'm also in the process of adding YouTube and the website in the very near future, and expect more written content in various outlets as well as written activist guides for right-wingers. Producing this content is now my full-time job, and if you find this project helpful and my content worthy, I would love your support. I've dusted off my Patreon and I have a cash app, and patronizing those would be greatly appreciated. My cash app is dollar sign ee smith four. That's the number four, and the Patreon is patreon.com backslash ee smith four. Again, that's the, the number four. For the cost of buying me a mocha frappuccino at Starbucks, I can continue my work that's ultimately about helping you. Today is episode six, and we're going to talk about the Democratic Socialists of America. Today, the DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with around seventy-five thousand members. You may not have heard of the DSA, but I'm fairly sure you've heard of their most famous member, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Some other notable members of DSA are Representative Rashida Tlaib, who, with Ocasio-Cortez, make up half of the squad in the House of Representatives. There's also the late Representative John Conyers. There's the actor Ed Asner. He was on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and was the Screen Actors Guild president. Uh, there's Brace Belden. I mentioned Brace in the Antifa episode. He's currently a labor organizer in San Francisco. He um, went to go fight with the Kurds in Syria. And Jake Gyllenhaal is actually making a film about his life. There's Lee Carter, who's a Virginia State representative. There's the documentarian Michael Moore. Yeah, the big fat guy that predicted Trump was going to win in 2016. He's a DSA member. There's the radical Islamist Linda Sarsour, who you may remember for being expelled from the Women's March for her anti-Semitism. Another interesting member is Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, her, she's actually the co-founder of DSA, and her daughter is Rosa Brooks. And if you remember, um, if you haven't listened to it already, go back and listen to episode 5, where I covered the Transition Integrity Project and shut down DC. One of the co-founders of the Transition Integrity Project is Rosa Brooks, and Rosa Brooks is Barbara Ehrenreich's daughter. One of the things I talked about in episode five was the, you know, the network, the hard left organizing network, and we discussed an article um, from on American Greatness, written by David Reborn and Kyle Schindler, talking about 
the Antifa industry, and they called it the Antifa industry at work, talking about this network. And Barbara Ehrenreich and her daughter, Rosa Brooks, or that crossover there between them is just one more example of that. And definitely read that piece. Go there um, and, and listen to that piece, Episode 5, and look up American Greatness, the Antifa Industry at Work. It's a really great, very detailed piece that talks about a lot of this stuff that you know, we're going to cover over here. Now, one name you probably haven't heard of, but that's very important to know, is Bhaskar Sankara. He is a former DSA vice chair and the founder of Jacobin Magazine. You know what a guillotine is, right? The big choppy boys where they stick people in and it cuts their heads off in a basket. You've probably seen it in some films. Well, the Jacobins are the people who made those famous. Sankara claims he named his magazine after the Haitian revolutionists known as the Black Jacobins instead of the French lunatics behind the reign of terror, but you don't really see many people wearing swastikas these days claiming it's a Hindu good luck symbol, so I'm not really sure if that should be considered a good argument. Even if he is telling the truth about naming his magazine, it hasn't stopped him from tweeting some rather disturbing stuff. October 2nd, 2020. The question isn't what we think justice demands. I think killing little Romanov children was justified. But it's not surprising why these views are controversial given most people's ethical and moral frameworks. A little background on that, in case you don't know, the Romanovs were the ruling family of Imperial Russia. Tsar Nikolai and his family were kidnapped by the Bolsheviks during the Communist Revolution, and then the entire family was machine gunned to death in the basement. Yes, everyone. The Tsar, his wife, their five children, and their dog. Look, I'll never be able to understand how someone can simultaneously believe that holding children in immigration detention is fascism, but machine gunning other children in a basement is not. So we're just going to chalk that one up to Clown World 2020 and move on. We'll get back to Jackman in a bit, but let's go over some quick history of DSA. DSA was founded in 1982 by Michael Harrington and Barbara Ehrenreich, who were the first co-chairs of the organization. The two groups that merged were the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee and the New American Movement. Their history is fairly complicated. You see, there's this misunderstanding that right-wingers are the ones who infight and argue, and that left-wingers are the ones who are unified and work together, and that's not true. The history of socialism in America is a confusing mess because socialists fight all the time. The co-founder of DSA, Michael Harrington, used to lead something called the Socialist Party of America. The Socialist Party of America is an old-school organization whose roots go back to the 19th century. They were partnered with the Wadley's International Workers of the World. One of their leaders was Eugene Debs, who was the socialist candidate for president like five times. So they go back a long way. In 1973, Harrington actually thought that the SPA was moving to the right, so he left with some loyalists and created the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. Then a few years later, in 1982, he joined up with the New American Movement to create the DSA. New American Movement was a successor organization to the recently dissolved Students for a Democratic Society, which was the new left student-run organization in the 1960s. Another well-known successor movement to the Students for Democratic Society was the Weather Underground. That was the terrorist organization run by Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn that were notorious for their bombing campaign. So in a real sense, the DSA is a fusion between the new left and the old left. 
Now, what we mean by new left and old left is the old left is very focused on economics. It's traditional Marxism, uh, economic factors, dialectical materialism, and it could be, you know, culturally and socially conservative in a lot of ways. The new left is more of what we would think of as contemporary leftism, very much about more of a decentralized type of organization, more about being in favor of social justice and wokeness, um, LGBT rights, um, abortion rights. They want to legalize drugs. I, I guess the way to sum it up is like the old left is more of what you would think of as like the authoritarian leftists, like the tankies is what they call them, like the Stalinists. They're not all Stalinists, but they're much more likely to be kind of in that direction. Whereas the new left is much more of like contemporary leftism, like libertarian socialism, um, where it's very socialist, but it's also not strictly hierarchical. I mean, of course, we all know lefties are, can be incredibly intolerant, but they're not like strictly hierarchical in the sense of like having a leadership chain of command. So the DSA is founded. They spend the next 30 years as basically a fringe lefty group between five or 6,000 members. And in 2013, their average age was 68. Today, their median age is 30, and their membership is over 75,000. What changed? Well, three things happened. Jacobin Magazine was founded. Bernie Sanders ran for the Democratic nomination for president. And Trump was elected. Let's start with Jacobin. They are a socialist quarterly magazine based in New York City and founded by, as I mentioned, Bhaskar Sankara. They were founded in 2010. They currently claim to have a paid print circulation of 60,000 and around 2 million hits on their website a month. You may remember in my Contextual Insurgent weekly roundup newsletter from last Sunday, I linked to an article in in um Jacobin Magazine, it was an interview with Jane McAlevey, who's a rather prominent leftist organizer. That was the, the last link I had in my newsletter. And you're going to see a fair number of links to Jacobin in my newsletter because they have a lot of really interesting stuff. And they're a really good insight into what's going on with this corner of the hard left. Sankara mentioned in an interview that his objective was to create a magazine that would be to the left like National Review was to the right. To be honest, I don't think he's quite there yet, but he's definitely on the way. The thing that really goosed his magazine's popularity was Bernie Sanders. Sanders espouses a lot of new left ideas, so it shouldn't be surprising that so many people who would be into Jacobin also got behind Sanders. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the term Bernie Bros. Well, a lot of those people ended up being Jacobin subscribers. So Sanders fails to win the nomination in the Democratic primary, and this is where things get really interesting. Now, one thing you're going to hear me harp on a lot with this podcast is that lefties are really good at building community and organizations and networks, and right-wingers simply don't. And this is exactly where it matters. You see, Jacobin Magazine has something called a Jacobin Reading Group. One thing I've mentioned in pretty much every podcast I've done at least once, is something called an affinity group. A reading group is an affinity group. Jacobin is a political magazine. So if you're getting together with a bunch of other people to read a political magazine, it's probably a pretty good guess that all of those people are politically compatible. Now, socialist reading groups aren't anything new. But where it's different is, Jacobin is less a magazine about some abstract theory as it is about actually putting that theory into action.
One of the most telling things to me is the fact that lefties have a word for putting theory into action and righties do not. You may hear lefties talk about this word, praxis. Well, praxis is the process by which a theory, lesson, or skill is enacted, embodied, or realized. I don't think I've ever heard National Review use that word. What is the praxis behind a reading group? Well, you take a lot of like-minded people and you put them together face-to-face -to -face on a consistent basis discussing political topics. More importantly, and I want to quote from a Jackman piece called Don't Study Collective Action Alone that's dealing with these reading groups. Just as important, it habituated those who were in charge of coordinating reading groups to doing the very unglamorous but indispensable work that makes any successful group run. Finding meeting space, doing outreach, keeping records, ordering pizza, formulating agenda, answering email. The same techniques it takes to organize a reading group are the same techniques it takes to build political power. And if you're with Jacobin, you're probably going to have coordinators whose job it is to help go around and set up those reading groups and facilitate introductions and building a network. Here's a test for you. It's the end of 2016. Your man, Bernie, lost the nomination. Hillary won the nomination, then lost to Donald Trump. You have got a network across the country of angry, agitated, ideologically aligned Bernie bros. What do you do with them? I'm going to pause here for three seconds, let you think of an answer, and I'm going to come back with my answer. Congratulations, you just built an army. Now pick an objective for that army and go accomplish it. The objective the Jacobin generals picked was to seize control of the Democratic Socialists of America. This is a tactic lefties use a lot called entryism. Entryism is basically what Donald Trump did to the Republican Party. You see, building infrastructure is really hard. It's usually a lot easier to find the infrastructure that you want than figure out a way to seize control of it. Just to take a digression for a moment on Trump, I actually consider Trump like a third-party candidate. Um, I think he realized, you know, he, he considered running in 2000 as like a reform, reform party candidate. But I think he quickly realized, you know, he's a businessman. So he's like, you know what, instead of spending years building all this infrastructure that I need, I think I'll just go find a party who's kind of sort of aligned and then take it over and refashion it into what I want. Um... You know, Trump's a businessman, and one thing businessmen do is if they want something a company has, they will buy the company for that one piece and sell off everything else. You know, it, why spend all the time duplicating effort and money, all that stuff, if you can just go out and buy what you need? I think his miscalculation was he underestimated the amount of pushback and resistance he would get from the establishment Republican types. But that's basically entryism. A bunch of, you know, one person or a bunch of ideologically aligned people enter an organization and they collaborate together. They bring in other people that think like them and they redirect this entire organization, this pre-existing organization, in the direction they want it to go. So Jacobin started with something called the Momentum Slate. And, it you know, that was their first slate of people that they picked and organized to elect in the DSA to their governing organizations. So you can imagine, you know, if you've got a group like the DSA with six or 7,000 people, 
and you flood them with tens of thousands of people that are on your side, you're very quickly going to own that organization. So the Momentum Slate you know, eventually evolved into Momentum Caucus, and now it goes by Bread and Circus Caucus. And again, I have to remind you, I brought this up earlier, socialists and hard lefties, they're, they're so prone to factionalism, so don't, do not think the DSA is some monolithic organization. Jacobin is very much at the driver's seat, but even those guys have kind of split off in their own little faction. Some of them more democratic, more electoral, some of them more direct action and, and radical. So there is, there is a spectrum of beliefs within the DSA. What's the point of seizing control of DSA if it's so small and fringe? Well, for starters, it was great practice. The best example I've heard to illustrate this principle is bodybuilding. How many bodybuilders have you ever heard of that started out picking heavyweights? No, they started off with small weights. DSA was the political equivalent of a five-pound dumbbell. Another thing this did was it kept people engaged. You see, you need energy, but to keep that energy going, you need structure to channel that energy into productive means. People have to know and feel like what they're doing is making a difference. So you've got a few years to your preferred presidential candidate gets another shot at the nomination. So what do you do? Well, you can continue practicing building power by backing local and state and federal candidates for other offices. This does several things. You're getting good practice in for starters. You're also building a pool of future candidates to recruit from for higher office. You're also building a network of power and institutions that make you an attractive ally for other candidates that are looking to potentially ally with you. Lefties believe in this thing called dual power. And it's basically, they're trying to interface with the existing power system to change the world in a way that they desire. But they're also building counter institutions and parallel institutions that are capable of competing and potentially replacing those institutions. So they're trying to go for a win-win strategy. Their ultimate goal was getting Sanders nominated and elected as president in 2020. But they also wanted to create a pool of candidates at every level from federal, state, and local that could support and back Sanders. But they also wanted to make themselves valuable so Sanders would collaborate with them and, but they also wanted to leave themselves the option of if Sanders, you know, didn't want to continue allying with them or ended up not winning the election or the nomination, they had alternative ways to build power. Obviously, as we've noticed, you know, by now, Sanders has not won the nomination, so they're back to plan B. One thing that DSA does for candidates is they will have a, an electoral slate, and they will basically determine who they're going to endorse. They have a bunch of questions and interviews they do for candidates and candidates in an area that are in line with DSA values and principles um, will be placed on a, an electoral slate to send to membership. And part of getting on that slate is they also offer electoral advice and help like they have phone banks and all sorts of other infrastructure which is, you know, again, this is something very useful in organizing is, is make yourself useful to people and people will come to you. And a quote from this piece, and again, in Jacobin Magazine talking about the New York City DSA electoral slate, there's a quote from one of their candidates. 
at Brisport, who unsuccessfully ran for city council in 2017, says he likely wouldn't have run in 2020 without the slate. Running for office is a really lonely, scary thing. It's really hard on your mental health, he said. I knew I didn't want to go through all that again. You know, I ran for office, and I can basically agree with that. It's a very lonely, scary thing, and there's a lot that's involved with it. And it can be a very complicated um, process with a lot of pitfalls. And it's very, very comforting to have someone there that's going to hold your hand as you go through the process, especially if you've never done it before. Even when you're not getting your people directly elected to office, there's plenty of other useful things you can do. You can probably get your people placed on staff or politicians where they can influence legislation and policy. I mean, you don't really think Nancy Pelosi is writing 1,100-page bills, do you? No, that's her staff and lobbyists that are doing that. You can also get people working at nonprofits or even for-profit corporations where they can, you know, provide assets and resources and influence policies there. An important thing to remember here is DSA is not going off and creating its own Democratic Socialist Party. No, it's working to influence the Democratic Party. That's the thing about entryism, is it scales. You know, you seize control of one organization, you use that organization to seize control of another. So, this guy created Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin Magazine created Jacobin Reading Groups. The Jacobin Reading Groups seized control of DSA. DSA is in the process of trying to seize control of the Democratic Party. The most frustrating part to me as a right-leaning person is these sorts of tactics are not things that the right-leaning base is good at. The only really incident I can think of where some right-leaning insurgents took over a larger organization was Neil Knox, who, you know, orchestrated taking over the NRA and turning it into the gun rights juggernaut that we have known for like the last 40-something years. But it wasn't much long after that that he got, you know, counter-revolutioned by Wayne LaPierre and that crowd who turned it into a grift organization. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, there's the Tea Party, and the Tea Party had basically the same thing, where the Tea Party, a lot of you know establishment and corporate interests basically cannibalized it very quickly. Uh, I can't really think of any off the top of my head. Yeah, I think this is partly what's frustrating is the the left has an environment that is at least somewhat more conducive to building these grassroots organizations, um, whether or not they're going to interest something else. But on the right, it's all about, it seems like our establishment groups are all about sniffing out um, and basically entryism, anything we do grassroots and crushing it. Um, so it's a little bit different ecosystem, and I'm still working out some of the differences. Like, I don't think we can copy everything the left does. I think we can take a lot of lessons from them because they have a lot of, you know, they, they're, they're very good at what they do. But we're not leftists. Our situation is a little bit different. But we can definitely, you know, look at some of the things they've done and adapt it to our situation. So back to DSA. You know, one thing that people get confused about and DSA members take advantage of this is what exactly democratic socialism is. Um, one thing they'll tell you, and most people may think this, is democratic socialism is basically like Sweden. Well, 
No, I mean, Sweden is still a nation state. It has a lot of capitalism. It's a capitalist, a capitalist country, a Western country. They have high tax rates and, you know, a welfare state, but they are not socialist in the same sense that DSA means socialism. There is this one mistake that, that the left and the right both make, where they treat each other as a monolith. You know, it aggravates me, and I'm sure it aggravates you, that, you know, a lot of the leftists consider everyone on the right to be a fascist. Well, you know, there's there's a thing that aggravates the left where that we basically consider everyone on the left to be a liberal. The only person that hates liberals more than a right-winger is a leftist. Now, again, the DSA is not strictly a monolith. They have multiple factions within them. But there is no faction within the DSA that can remotely be considered liberal in the sense that you or I, you know, understand that term. They have several communist caucuses in the DSA, including one called Communist Caucus. And it's at communistcaucus.com. And their landing page says, We are a caucus of communist organizers in the DSA. We believe in rebuilding class organization and supporting the struggle against capital. You click over on their statement page, and you know it's, it's a lot of stuff talking about building mass power and some interesting things. It says class power arises from working class institutions, not advocacy organizations. And this is again, this is something that the right doesn't really understand. You know, the right has a lot of advocacy organizations. Like you know, the NRA is really kind of an advocacy organization, and that's like where you have a professional staff that advocates for some narrow um, policy and that's that's very limiting and they're actually talking about again you know this is something you see a lot they're not talking about trying to advocate or persuade they're talking about literally building the institutions that can press for power directly you know this takes us back to direct action um, direct action is a word I mentioned before and you're gonna hear it a lot more and it's really misunderstood a lot of right-wingers, you hear direct action, and you know our picture of that is a bunch of guy with a bunch of guys with guns, like jumping out and doing like cool ninja stuff. And yeah, that is direct action, but direct action is so much bigger than that. Direct action is trying to change things directly yourself. Uh, electoral politics is, you know, not direct action because you're trying to get someone else to change things for you. Uh, direct action can be violent or nonviolent. Ex examples of like nonviolent direct action would be like the civil rights movement. Um, the people that went and sat at the lunch counters was nonviolent direct action. That's actually called prefigurative direct action. What you're trying to do is you're not only trying to change things, you're trying to actually create what you want to see. Because when black and white people sitting together at a lunch counter was what they wanted so they literally went and did it so that they were creating examples of the ideal world they wanted to live in violent direct action is pretty much what it means and that's what most people who hear that word think you know the the code word cool operator guys that i just mentioned that most especially right-wing people picture when they hear direct action that is direct action but there's also like stuff when you see the Antifa black bloc attacking people in the street. That's also violent direct action. They have another communist caucus called Emerge. It's you know you can find it at DSA 
emerge e m e r g e dot org and every everything I'm going to talk to you here is out in the open but go to their points of unity and when you look down there it's 13 points and the 13th point is called for a communist horizon the need for working class revolution in our lifetime is urgent we seek to abolish capitalism in the capitalist state we seek the reappropriation of wealth and social ownership of property and they say while the revolution is necessary to realize this vision will inevitably involve some kind of rupture it will neither be a single explosive event nor will it happen of its own accord revolution is a process that begins now by building a fighting organization with deep roots in the new york working class a developed understanding of all forms of oppression and unwavering commitment to class struggle so yeah they're very open about this this is literally for a communist horizon this is dsa emerge in new york city which is the same organization that alexandria ocasio cortez is involved with and it's it's right out here in the open for anyone to see if you just click on their website they have another section here that essentially calls for the abolishment of the united states it's for internationalism anti-imperialism and decolonization is the title of this of this sub point um, we must also recognize that the united states is a settler colonial nation state we must support the decolonization self-determination and sovereignty of indigenous first nation peoples and all subjects of colonial violence imperial violence smothers liberation struggles all over the world we must oppose all such interventions whether military economic or otherwise and build material solidarity socialist movements people's struggles and all combinations thereof across the world from the zapatista movement in mexico to the revolution in rojava uh you know rojava is in the middle east that's in syria where they had uh brace belden went um yeah this is an international thing they they openly talk about you know getting rid of the nation state and destroying nationalism and this great big churning mass of people across the globe this last sub point here is rather concerning uh, it's titled for revolutionary preparedness and direct confrontation with the enemy the moment and the new horizon of our political work continues to be one of escalating danger the bourgeoisie are willing to let the world burn if it means they can rule over the ashes and it starts talking about fascist violence and it says you know social welfare pro programs will not defeat fascism white supremacist violence is the heart of american capitalism and must be ripped out our movement must develop a security culture and communal self-defense um not, not only protect our spaces and our neighbors in new york city but also to be ready for direct action in moments of emergent crisis and need and these capabilities represent our abilities to mobilize confidently and quickly to stand in solidarity with those resisting the onslaught of capitals enforcers anti-fascist organizing is fundamental to building bonds in the ongoing collective struggle and represents possibilities for revolutionary breaks now i'm going to use this part to segue into something that they had at one, their last um national conference they had uh, one of their revolution nine which was adopted establishing a national anti-fascist and direct action working group this was at the dsa national meeting and they adopted this and this is the official policy so what does it say 
So let's go over it. It's talking about we can't fight exploitation, white supremacy, or patriarchy without anti-fascist work. So they create a national working group, which is basically a collaborative um, center for them to work with Antifa groups across the country. Uh, they say fascists in the far right pose an existential threat to marginalized communities. And down here it says, what does it say? All of our work is under attack. Anti-fascist tactics have been pro historically proven to disrupt and stop the incursion of fascism. Um, it says one foot in the institutions, one foot in the streets. This is the foot in the streets. So they're they're literally talking about starting Antifa fighting groups for the streets to attack Trump supporters. Again, I want to reiterate this point. Um, the way they use fascist and the way we use fascist is not the same thing. They think basically everyone to the right of them is fascist. Uh, you know, you have to, when you think it's reasonable to completely erase, you know, all ownership of property and impose communal ownership of property and erase all national borders and anyone who opposes you is a fascist. I mean, these people are way, way out on the left. And they are a growing force. And this is this is honestly, you know, you're you're welcome to look this up. Like I said, this is this part for resolution nine is at dsabuild.org. Um, all of this stuff is online. Again, you know, lefties are so used to putting their stuff online because they know that most right wing people won't actually look for it. It probably wouldn't surprise you that there's considerable overlap with DSA membership and people that are involved with Antifa. One way we like to think of it is that Antifa is almost the DSA's like street fighting wing. Um, there's a tremendous overlap. Uh, we have seen this a lot in Berkeley and the Pacific Northwest. I mean, it's not complete, um, but the thing is, you know, I have mentioned before, like in the Antifa episode, that that Antifa has like a you know a two tier type of uh, membership. They have the dedicated cadre, like affinity groups. Then they have the people that are more um, individuals that are, they may identify as Antifa, but they're not part of any real organized affinity group. And the former, the, the affinity groups and the cadres, um, they're much more likely to have like DSA membership and, you know, DSA affiliations. So I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping this up. Uh, a couple things I want you to remember. Remember what I was saying about, you know, entryism, which is instead of really going through the trouble to build your entire organization from the ground up, sometimes it's better to, you know, find an organization that has what you need and see about taking it over from the inside. That's a very common lefty tactic. Another thing is, you know, building power. This is what DSA did. They did a mix of both building power and entryism. Uh, they had Jacobin Magazine, and Jacobin started their reading groups, which basically created like little cells, like a little affinity groups across the country of ideologically aligned people that, you know, and, and setting up an affinity group gave them a good grounding in uh, basic organizing. And then they took that organization to take over the DSA and build the DSA into something like a becoming a political powerhouse and now they have their sights set on you know eventually taking over the Democratic Party but at least trying to push it you know in a direction that is 
you know, more conducive to what they want to accomplish. Um, obviously, Bernie failed again to, you know, win the nomination. But there still is this massive, like, hard lefty organizing infrastructure that's out there, and the DSA is a big part of it. So the election's coming up in two days. Um, if you want to go back and listen to my episode five, I gave a really good rundown of the Transition Integrity Project, which is basically the people that are trying to plan out a coup. Uh, essentially a coup where they don't want to, even if Trump actually wins the election, they don't plan to recognize it. And the Shutdown DC Project, which is a plan to, you know, this this street organization um, uh, that is, ba you know, I, I break it all down really well in that episode, but they're planning to create massive sustained disruption, not only in DC, but in major urban areas. Uh, one thing I recommended in that episode was have at least a month, you know, maybe two months if you can swing it of decent, you know, food and water and keep your next couple days, next week or so. If you go somewhere in your car, keep your fuel um, topped off because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we may have some serious disruptions. If you can store some, some fuel or gas in some cans somewhere, that's awesome. Um, you know, have medicine. Um, you know, if you have any friends in your neighborhood, touch base with them. Make sure, you know, everyone is, is ready to, maybe you have like a signal or telegram chat group where you can stay in touch in case things pop off. I mean, this is, this is all regional stuff because, you know, it's like if you're in a red area, red rural area in the Midwest or something or out West, you're probably okay. If you're in an urban area, your threat profile is much more, it's much different and I would suggest paying a lot more attention. Um, go back and listen to episode 5. I break this stuff down fairly well. And if you want to as well, listen to episode 4, which was Autopsy of a Riot. I had a really good episode with a Bolivian national who you know, has a lot of experience with South American riots. And we also shared my experience with, you know, I've been in more than a few riots. Not only is someone being attacked by hard lefties, but also someone who's been undercover in Antifa. Um, oh yeah, another thing, I contributed to a book um, that was just published by Center for Security Policy on Antifa. Uh, look it up, uh, Center for Security Policy. Um, it's you know called Unmasking Antifa, um, five, five Expert Perspectives on, on Antifa, and check it out. It's a really good book. Um, really, you know, I wrote one of the chapters on tactics. Um, there's four other people that have pretty serious credentials and experience and they wrote about their stuff as well go check that out um well my and also sign up for my Substack. i have the actual inter insurgent Substack. i'll have a link in the comments um i will have oh, i'm having weekly like roundup newsletters that go up go out every sunday night uh basically explaining everything that's happened that week and giving like a lot of perspective um and di different links to news reports, giving a lot of perspective on current events. But check it out. Um, also, yeah, if, if you've appreciated my work here, um, please. This is my full-time job now. And if you want to support me, my cash app is dollar sign e e smith four. That's the number four. Uh, my Patreon is patreon.com backslash e e smith four. Again, that's the number four. I'm going to have a YouTube channel um, that's in the process of getting set up and a website. But thank you so much for tuning in for your Contextual Insurgent podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith.